there's a word that used to be much more popular in the Christian world that isn't so popular today. And it's a word known as polemics. Polemics, to be a polemical Christian or to have a polemical Christianity. And the word polemics is actually relatively similar to the word apologetics. Uh, to be polemical is to essentially be on the attack. To be polemical is a polemical Christianity is one in which you are interested in pointing out the errors of other beliefs or other religions around you. As a matter of fact, there's uh, many organizations today that are known as polemical organizations, polemical blogs, polemical ministry, ministries of polemics, and that's all they do. Their job is they just sort of uh, kind of prowl and keep an eye over evangelicalism, an eye over the country, and they explain, ah, this is guy's a false teacher, this guy's a false teacher, this gal shouldn't listen to her. And so oftentimes in our very ecumenical, very polite Christian society, we don't have much of a place for polemical Christians. Right, they're, they're cruel and they're rude and they're just always looking for problems. And there's no doubt that polemics, like any good thing, can be abused. People can be very rude and cruel and ungracious in the name of polemics. But what we're going to find as we continue through the book of Galatians is that there absolutely is a place for polemical Christianity. There is a place to be very harsh very stern, very forceful when it comes to grave and serious errors working their way into the church. Will you please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We are going to begin in verse 7. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, and I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Well, that was quite the ending, so let's stop there. As I was preparing my sermon all week, I was just praying all week long. I hope lots of people this week ask me, so what are you preaching on this weekend? Because I wanted to respond, well, we're going to talk about castrating heretics. Paul, as we go through this, clearly, we, we discussed last week, Paul, got, Paul started to take the gloves off last week. You who would be justified by law have been severed from Christ who have fallen from grace. He anathematized these false teachers. You are not Christians. You are not saved. You don't know Christ, you don't know grace, this is not Christian religion. He took the gloves off. And what we found this week is he has not put them back on. Paul here goes on a polemical paragraph attacking these false teachers and their false gospel at the same time. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to learn about how we should appropriately think about false teachers and about false teaching. What should be our attitude 
toward false gospels? What should be our attitude towards those who come into the church and plant false gospels? Should we have a light and trivial attitude? How serious of an issue is this? And we're going to look at a number of points that Paul teaches us, three points specifically, about false teachers and about false teaching. And the first thing we see is this, false teachers are wicked. False teachers are wicked. We see that littered all throughout this text. Paul does not approach these men, or maybe some women, as if they are merely mistaken. All right, like these are just good, good-hearted, honest Christians who love the Lord so much, but they, they just have some mistaken understanding of something, so we just need to, you know, just, just, just bear with them. These are not cute, ignorant, new Christians that Paul is. Just, just be patient. No, this, this text is riddled with cursing against these people. Paul sees these as people who are wicked and they are accountable for their wickedness that they have brought into the church. He says in verse 7, for example, you were running well. He, he goes back to, we saw this in the pastoral epistles, Paul loved to uh, use the, 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 the metaphor of the race to describe the Christian life. It is he who perseveres to the end who shall be saved. The Christian life is something we persevere in all our lives. We must keep the faith and we must remain with Christ up until the end and we must learn the faith and obey it more and more. It's like a race. We keep running. But Paul says, what did these false teachers do? They've come in and they have hindered you. Some of your translations say trouble you or trip you up. He uses the analogy that you were in your lane running hard and these people came in and kicked your feet out. They blocked you. They held you back. They hindered you. They troubled you from running your race. He, he presents them as actively opposing your Christianity. They're tripping you up. You're trying to get to the finish line, and they won't let you. But more than that, notice how he describes their behavior. Not only does he describe it metaphorically, insinuating that they have hindered you from running the race, but then he says explicitly, what have they hindered us from? From obeying the truth. This is a common phrase in the New Testament. The Christian faith as a whole, taken as a unit, is not merely a set of doctrines to believe. It is a lifestyle to be obeyed. The gospel is something that we come into obedience with, not just belief. The Bible is very comfortable saying to obey the gospel. It's a reminder that the gospel is not an invitation. We, we do not invite people to believe the gospel. The gospel is not take it or leave it invitation. The gospel is a commandment. Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that God, after having formerly looked over the past ignorances of the world, has raised Jesus Christ, vindicating him as the Son of God, and now commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance and faith in Christianity is not an option. It's a commandment. We are not inviting people to make Jesus Lord. We are telling people God has already made him Lord, and you need to come and affirm that. He's already Lord. He's already the Lord of your life. God did that. You don't do that. So it's time for you to repent and affirm that. The gospel is something we obey. 
The whole Christian life, all throughout the scriptures, we see obeying the truth of the Christian faith. And so what does this mean? What have the Judaizers ultimately brought into the church? Disobedience. Their false teaching is ultimately a religion of disobedience. Again, not ignorance, not just a small little mistake. God bless them. They are disobedient. They are disobedient people who have forced these people to stumble in their race. Paul holds these people accountable for what they're saying and what they're doing to the church. But we see it additionally very forcefully in verse 10. Notice what he says. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. So he begins to distinguish the Galatians from the false teachers. And remember, he doesn't even consider the, the false teachers as part of this church. They are not you. They are they. You are you. And he gives them this great sign of confidence. That he, he began this book by reminding them of the God who has called you. He talks in verse 9 about the God who has called them. He gives them this great burst of hope and confidence that I am confident that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. That he who called you will be faithful to you. I am confident that you have been called and that you will not give in to these people. He gives them this great burst of confidence. I am confident that you will remain on the race, that you will keep running. But as for them... As for them who tried to ruin this call of God, who tried to get you off track, how does he view them? That the one who has troubled you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Again, are these people innocent? No. Are they ignorant? No. Paul says what they're doing is disobedient and they deserve the judgment of God. He does switch to the singular in verse 10, right? He goes from they to you, whoever he is in singular. We don't really know how uh, exactly what Paul's doing. He, he could be addressing all of them as one person since they're unified in their teaching, all the false teachers. Because we know there was more than one. He's gonna, he says in verse 12, I wish those who, who unsettle you. So there's definitely more than one. But for some reason in verse 10, he, he goes to a singular. He's, he's either addressing them all as one man, one group bearing the, the judgment of God. Or what it could be is that Paul suspects there was maybe one primary ringleader in all of this. That maybe while there were multiple false teachers, there was really one particular man who was leading the charge and doing a lot of damage. And if that is the case, it's just one important reminder for us. We need to be very careful that we are not enticed and lured by young, charismatic, exciting leaders. It's amazing when you look at cults throughout all of church. What's one of the things that cults almost always have in common? This one articulate, strong, smart, charismatic leader. I suspect that there was one person who was even above the rest primarily culpable for leading this new Judaizing movement that eventually crept its way into the Galatian church. That there was one leader specifically who was causing quite the damage. But whether you see it as the singular or the plural is really beside the point. The point is this. Whoever they are, whoever he is, may God judge him. May he bear the penalty. May he bear the judgment that he rightly deserves. 
Paul describes false teachers as disobedient. He describes them as being worthy of judgment. You see our first point here? These are wicked people. These are wicked people. But perhaps none of those are as forceful as verse 12. If you, if you need proof that Paul sees these people as truly wicked, he says in verse 12, I wish those who, would, uh, who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This has been a verse that has troubled many a Christian. What you'll find is that this word in the Greek that is used here to describe those who would preach circumcision is Paul saying, I wish that those would emasculate themselves with only one exception where this word is used to describe in the New Testament of cutting a rope that held a boat to a dock. This word is always used to describe bodily amputation. When Jesus says that uh, it is better for you to cut off your right hand than to enter the king or then to perish. It's used here. When he says to pluck out your eye, it's used here. It's used all throughout the New Testament to describe body amputation, bodily mutilation. If you just do a basic Greek word search on this word, you will find it is very clear that this was a word for amputation. This was a word for bodily self-inflicted harm. And what's most powerful in all of this is that the word is found in Deuteronomy. And specifically the way it's used in Deuteronomy is to describe people who would intentionally castrate themselves and make themselves eunuchs. That's where, that's where the word ultimately comes from. The Greek translation of the Old Testament used this verb when describing men who would emasculate themselves and force themselves into being a eunuch. And so I would argue that there's very little doubt of what Paul is really actually saying. There, there are some commentators who have tried to argue that he's merely talking about being cut off from the church. This isn't bodily. I, I just, and that's possible, but I really don't think the Greek supports that. And that's why the, almost all of the modern translations will go out of their way to say something like mutilate or emasculate or castrate. He used the Greek word for amputation. In other words, Paul was essentially saying this, those who are so obsessed with circumcision, I hope that when they are getting their circumcision, there's a slip of the knife. This would be uh, equivalent, uh, imagine someone came into our church and started preaching that you have to partake of the Lord's Supper to be saved. Your faith is not enough. If you don't eat of this meal, you are unsaved. And we worked with them and tried to teach them, but they continued to promote that. And they started secretly inviting people into their house and trying to continue to infiltrate them with that belief that your faith is not enough. You have to partake of this to be saved. It would be similar to us when we finally go through the process of church discipline, saying something like, you can go to your church and you can eat your blasphemous supper there and I hope you choke on it. That's what Paul did. Fine, enjoy your circumcision. I hope you cut too much. But I, I want us to know, though, that there is something to this concept of, of being separated from the church as well. This is sort of, in one book that I read, this was referred to as the mother of all insults. Because this is a multi-layered insult. Not only is it just kind of clever, not, not so much a pun, but it's, it's just kind of a clever, oh, you're interested in circumcision and cutting, I hope you cut too much. It's clever, but there is an additional level to it. There is a level of being separated from the church and from God. And here's why I say that. If you were to read when this, how this word is used in Deuteronomy, 
When it describes men who would do this to themselves, they would make themselves eunuchs, they would emasculate themselves. It's in the context of the Deuteronomical law saying these men are not allowed in the temple. These men are not permitted to worship with you. These men may not enter in to the presence of God. So I do think Paul is insulting them here, but I think it's more than just an insult. I think he is subtly communicating what he explicitly communicated last week. I think these Jews who were obsessed with the Mosaic Law, who were pushing the Mosaic Law onto the Christians, very well understood what came along with being a eunuch. What came along with being a, an emasculated man. They knew the law of God prohibited you from worship. And so Paul was doing more than just saying, I hope you emasculate yourselves. He was also reminding them that you are the emasculated man standing outside the kingdom of God, pounding on the doors trying to get in. That you don't belong in this church. You don't belong in our congregation. You don't belong in the temple of God. You have spiritually emasculated yourselves with your false gospel, so get out. I truly believe that these false leaders imposing the Mosaic law would have gotten that. They would have seen Paul has this entire letter. Paul has essentially been equating them with the Gentiles. You are spiritual Gentiles. You are spiritual foreigners. You are spiritual aliens. And in that like way, he says, remember that Deuteronomical law that says if you emasculate yourself, you're kicked out? That's you too. You're an emasculated Gentile. And you have no business worshiping with the people of God. No business worshiping with the people of God. And by the way, if you do take that position that that's all Paul's saying, he's not talking about any kind of physical amputation, then I would argue that that's still equally offensive. What's more offensive, saying, I hope you hurt yourself, or I hope you go to hell? What's harsher? As a matter of fact, John Calvin had to wrestle with this. John Calvin was very disturbed by verse 12. But it wasn't because verse 12 talked about castration. He agreed with Chrysostom, who many hundreds of years later also recognized that this is talking about castration. But that wasn't the part that, that, that bothered John Calvin. You want to know what bothered John Calvin? That Paul was wishing for these men's judgment rather than their salvation. That's what bothered him. It wasn't the castration that even bothered him. It was the fact that Paul was saying, we want you out, may God judge you. That's what Calvin saw. That's offensive. Now that's hurtful. And that's why Calvin had to say this in, 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 in sort of defending as he comes to Paul's defense, that Paul was not being, losing his temper or being overly harsh, Calvin had to say this, that it is a cruel kind of mercy which prefers a single man to the whole church. Ought not my care of the church to swallow up all my thoughts and lead me to a desire that its salvation should be purchased by the destruction of the wolf? And yet I would not wish that a single individual should perish in this way, but my love for the church and my anxiety over her interests carry me away into a sort of ecstasy so that I can think of nothing else. 
With such zeal as this, every true pastor of the church will burn. What's Calvin saying? Why did Paul engage in such a harsh polemic? Why would Paul say this stuff? May, may you be judged. May you be cut off from the church. May you emasculate. Why would Paul say this? Is it because he hate, he's so much full of hate? Is he just such a hateful man? No, he would say this because he's such a loving man. It's because he is filled with so much love. But for who? For the church. John Calvin says this, Be honest with me. When a wolf wanders into the sheep pen, what kind of polemic should the shepherd engage in? Well, let's just leave him here and hope he becomes a sheep. Maybe one day he'll become a sheep. Just don't, don't mess, don't bother him. Just leave him here. Hatred for the wolf is love for the sheep. Paul was so concerned for those whom God called. He was so concerned for the church of God, for the health of the churches, that when he saw the wolves, he started throwing rocks. Get away from my sheep. He was not burning with hatred. He was burning with zeal. He was burning with love. A love for God's church. A love for God's people. And he desired the salvation and protection of the entire region of Galatia more than he desired in protecting and coddling the feelings of false teachers. He burned with love. That is why one commentator said this. The book of Galatians goes on to say that we are to be kind, but it says specifically we are to be kind to one another. Sheep are to be kind to sheep, and shepherds are to be kind to sheep. But if a shepherd is kind to wolves, that is just another way to let them ravage the sheep. Kindness to sheep is hostility to wolves. Kindness to wolves is hostility to sheep. Paul had two options. Love the wolf or love the sheep. And that was easy for him. That was extremely easy to him. And, and this is an important application. This is why I remind you of the importance of church discipline. What do I mean by that? The church discipline is the entire process of correction. But what I'm specifically focusing on is what is the unfortunate end of church discipline? The church kicks somebody out. That's the end of church discipline. And we see in the Bible, church discipline is used for both false teaching and as well for sinful, immoral behavior. When people refuse to repent of that, we kick them out. And you will find churches today that will actually brag about the fact that they don't do such a thing. Because they're just too loving, right? Sorry, we're not, we're not so hateful like all those old-timey old school fire and brimstone churches who kick people out of their churches because they're rude and because they're jerks and because they don't love their neighbor and they don't care about the salvation of the unsaved and the lost. We, on the other hand, we care about the lost. We care about the unsaved. So we would never kick someone out of church. There is always room for you here. Not if you're a Judaizer. Not if you're the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who is claimed Christianity, who became a member of that church and then started sleeping with a family member and refused to stop. What did Paul say? Get him out. All are welcome in this church. 
But if people become a problem, if their life or their teaching starts hurting the church, they are most emphatically not welcome in this church. And why do we say that? Because we love. It is out of love for God's people that we throw stones at the wolves. Paul kicks people out of churches. Now, it wasn't flippant. It wasn't just, oh, that one guy disagreed with me at one time. He's gone. This was not a flippant thing. It doesn't say we should abuse that. But all we're saying is there must come a point in time for every church where people hit a breaking point. And that is not an act of hatred. That is actually an act of love. So I hope it's been clear that Paul's perspective is that false teachers who bring false gospels into a Christian church are wicked. And they need to be treated like they're wicked. They are disobedient men and women who deserve the judgment of God. False teachers are not something trivial. This is not a light-hearted thing. But notice, Paul didn't just say harsh things about them. He said harsh things about their teaching too. We learn something not just about false teachers, but we learn something also about false teaching. So here's our second principle. Our first principle is that false teachers are wicked. Here's our second one. False teaching is unbiblical. I know that sounds a little obvious, but I, I want us to see how I got there. This is important. False teaching is unbiblical. Look at verse 8. What does Paul say? After saying, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who, who, who caused you to be disobedient just like they are disobedient? He says this in verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So Paul makes sure right from the get-go to remind them that this gospel that's been brought into your church, it has an origin. All theology has an origin. It all comes from somewhere. Right? You, you've learned a lot of theology over your life. You've learned it from your parents. You've learned it from your church, from your pastors maybe. But they're not the origin of that. They learned it from someone. And you can keep tracing all doctrines back and you eventually hit a wall. You eventually have a fountainhead. This is where it comes from. In the Christian faith, the ultimate origin of the Christian religion is not in uh, teachers or pastors or parents. It's not even in the scriptures. It's not even in the apostles or the prophets. True religion, true teaching, find its origin in him who calls you. It's divine religion. It is God who authored these principles. It is God who revealed these things. It is God who revealed himself and his religion to us. God is the ultimate author of true religion. What I want to believe about Christianity is what God believes about Christianity. Now, we have things in place for how we get there, right? That begs the question, well, how do I know the mind of God? But foundationally, we need to remember something that is hopefully obvious. God is the author of true religion. He is the fountainhead, the origin of all true things. And Paul goes out of his way to say, I just want you to know that this gospel you're believing, God didn't invent this. God didn't reveal this. This is not God's religion. This is not a divine deposit of truth. This persuasion, this thing you've been convinced of, this thing you've been persuaded of, this gospel that you are tempted to believe, where did it come from? Well, he answers in the negative. I'll tell you where it didn't come from. It didn't come from the one who graciously called you from the beginning. 
It didn't come from that first direct deposit of divine truth that we first gave you to which you are now moving away from. And so he's implying something here. What is he implying? That this gospel they're believing, this teaching, this religion, it's ultimately, well, you could say worldly. The scriptures like to do that. They like to compare worldly philosophy to Christian religion. This comes from the world, not from God. But I would argue that if you were to go through the Bible and put it together, there's a place that it goes even beyond the world. That's satanic. False gospels are demonic. Satanic. You're either of your father, the devil, or you've been adopted into God's family and you are a father or you are a child of God the Father. But Jesus makes that clear. He tells the Pharisees, you do not hear my words because you are of your father, the devil. Everyone has a father that they are ultimately listening to. Satan or God. All false teaching ultimately comes from Satan or from God. Or forgive me, all teaching comes from either Satan or from God. And Paul says, this gospel that you've believed in is not divine in origin. But here's why I threw this important, I want us to trace that step though. And this is why I say false teaching is unbiblical. This is an important principle for us to remember. What I just said I don't think is all that shocking to you. I don't think you're surprised that, oh, God is the author of all true and good things. Wow, I never heard that before. But it obviously begs the question, okay, fine, I want to believe in God's religion and not the devil's. How do I know the mind of God? Does he talk to me at night? Does he tell me in dreams and visions, here's what you believe, everyone else is wrong? Yeah, Joseph Smith claimed that. Mohammed claimed that. That's not what Christians claim. We don't get our religion from going into a cave and hearing Gabriel. That's happened in Old Testament history, but that's not New Testament. We receive our deposit. What did 1 Timothy tell us? We are interested in what? The divine deposit that was given to who? The apostles. The apostles received Christian religion from Christ and it was their job to pass it on. And that's why the book of Jude could tell us, you need to contend, which is what Paul's doing in Galatians, you need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude was written in the first century. So what does that mean? No one is receiving new doctrine today. God is not adding to the Christian religion. He's not adding parts to the divine deposit that were never there. Jude tells us that the entire Christian religion was delivered through the apostles in the first century. So we're not interested in God telling me more and more in private visions. I want what did Jesus teach the apostles? Here's our line of authority. It begins with God the Father and he sent Jesus Christ the Son. And Jesus says in the book of John, I came to exegete to reveal the Father. So we have God, and by the way there was the prophets. The prophets heard from God and spoke from God, but Hebrews chapter 1 says long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. But in these last days, he speaks to us by his son. So we're not interested in prophets anymore. Jesus fulfilled and replaced the prophets. We don't get revelation from modern day prophets. It was God and then the prophets and then the ultimate prophet, the prophet above all prophets, Jesus Christ, and then he sent out his apostles and it was their job to teach people what they learned from Christ. So our line of authority is what do I want? I want what the apostles believed. 
They're the ones who knew what Jesus revealed. I want the apostolic faith. And that's Paul's argument throughout the whole book of Galatians, is you guys have to pick the Judaizers or the apostles. Those are your options. But remember, the apostles were sent by Christ. So what are you ultimately picking, the Judaizers or Christ? But remember, Christ was sent by the Father. So what are you ultimately picking, the Judaizers or God? You see that line of authority? But we have one extra step, though. We don't have apostles today either. They're all dead. So we want God. Well, then we need the prophets. Well, Jesus was the fulfillment of prophets. So we want God. We need Jesus. Jesus is gone. He ascended. Okay, well, he sent the apostles, so we need the apostles. Oh, they're gone. So how do I know what is divine truth today? The prophets and apostles are in your church, ladies and gentlemen. Paul is still speaking to us today, but not in dreams, not in voices, not in revelations. God has inspired his word. You want to know what Paul believed? What did Paul write? I don't care what someone 800 years after the first century told me Paul once said and it was transmitted through oral history and never written down. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in what people think Paul said. I want what Paul said. I want what Luke and John and Matthew and Peter and James, what did they actually believe? And that's how we get it from Scripture. This is what they wrote. This is what God left with us. So here's this important principle. False teaching is unbiblical. How do you determine false teaching from true teaching? Open up your Bibles and do the hard work of exegesis. A false teacher is anyone who would come and lead us away, not from tradition, not from what I heard God say to me once. No, false teachers are those who lead us away from Scripture. And that's why you'll notice, by the way, all the churches that we're seeing in our country in our day and age who are capitulating on things that is so obvious to us. How could you capitulate on this issue? Isn't it so clear? Well, you know why they're capitulating on that? Because a long time ago, they capitulated on the most important issue first, which is the sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture. Once they capitulated on that, then it was no problem to say, yeah, you know, I know Paul said that about homosexuality, but I think he's wrong. Yeah, I know Paul said about church discipline, but why should I listen to Paul? Churches give up the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, and now they can believe whatever they want. The most wicked and dangerous kind of false teaching is that which leads us away from the apostles. And we have the apostles in our church today through their writings. The most wicked kind of teaching is that which would directly contradict the scriptures. And that's why, what is Paul doing throughout all of Galatians? Taking them back to the scriptures, taking them back to the Old Testament. When Paul went and preached the gospel to the Bereans, we are recording Acts chapter 16, the Bereans said, we're not going to believe you until you prove it from the Bible, Paul. And guess what Luke, or guess what Acts 16, guess what Luke does there? He commends them. He says that they were the most noble of all of Paul's mission field because they were willing to check him according to the scriptures. Even Paul was not above scriptural examination. And seeing how does this fit with scripture? False teachers are wicked and their false teachings are unbiblical. And this last one we'll be quick with. False teaching is contagious. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This persuasion is not from him who calls you, and this persuasion has entered in. It might seem small. 
It doesn't have a lot of backing right now. It's a minority position. And it seems like an insignificant issue, right? It's just, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We believe in God. We believe in faith. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in all that. You just add the Mosaic law. That's it. Just a little dot. Just a little change. But Paul steals an analogy from Jesus. Jesus uses this metaphor when he talks about the Pharisees. He tells his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And then the disciples get all confused. Like, is he talking about bread? Is he about to do another bread miracle? I don't get it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically. I'm saying they're teaching. Beware of their teaching infiltrating you and the people of God. So Paul borrows that from his Lord. And he said, just like the Pharisees, these false teachers have come in with something that might seem small to you. But just like leaven, just like yeast, you put a little bit in the dough, what happens when you're done baking it? It's everywhere. It, go, it spreads through the whole lump. So why is Paul being so forceful? Why is Paul being so dramatic? Why is Paul being so harsh? Because he knows if we don't cut this out right now, there's no stopping it. Satan is powerful. False teaching can be alluring and enticing. And just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. So Paul knows I don't have room to do anything but cut this out immediately or else the, all the churches are in trouble. So we as a church, when it comes to false, serious gospel issues, we must address them immediately. They might seem small and their popularity might be low, but they can and oftentimes will corrupt the entire body. False teaching is dangerously contagious. So Paul's polemic, to summarize, we learn from Paul that false teachers are wicked, that false teaching is unbiblical, and that false teaching is contagious. And so here's how I think we can sum this up. We need to take away this issue from these three points. False teaching is not a small, trivial matter. This matters. What people bring into this church, the, the beliefs that they promote, the things that they promote, matters. When false teaching and false gospels infiltrate the church, this is not a small thing. This is not a light thing. Now, keep in mind, though, the book of Galatians has been, been very clear as to the severity of this issue. In other words, Paul is not making a mountain out of a molehill. So don't hear me saying that it's the elder's job to wish, to wish castration upon you every time you disagree with us. No. Paul is not merely just saying these men disagree with the universal church on any doctrine, therefore treat them harshly, kick them out. What has Paul said from Galatians chapter 1 and on? That this is a gospel issue. This is not a peripheral doctrine. There are lots of things that people in this church disagree on. We have disagreements on baptism, which is even a relatively big thing. And we have smaller things. We have Christians, for example, there are Christians in this church who come December are going to go all out with Christmas. We have Christians in this church who are going to kind of take a middle road. There's some things about Christmas they think a little weird, a little pagan. We're not going to do that, but we're still going to celebrate a little bit. And there's going to be Christians who say, no, no Christmas at all, it's pagan. So what do we do? We start kicking people out. We start chopping heads. I'm not saying that doesn't matter at all. That matters. But Paul didn't begin this with just some disagreement. He began this by saying, this is another gospel. You can't be saved 
and believe what the Judaizers believe. And that is what called the level of his intensity to the front. So no, our job is not to shoot to a hundred level intensity every time someone disagrees with a pastor. Any person who holds any minority position in this church, kick them out. No, that's not the point. But if people do come into this church and preach something that's so severe that we lose our salvation when we believe it, it's time to take the gloves off. It's time to get very serious. Because Paul got serious. We need to remember that false teaching and false teachers are not a small thing. Very few churches in, in our evangelical world are really consumed with this. Any, any time that someone talks about, I think they're a false teacher, I think that's a false teaching, it's like, whoa, settle down, you heresy hunter. Settle down, you uptight person who cares about theology. No, folks. Theology matters. What we believe matters. What's being taught matters. I remind you, James chapter 3 verse 1 says that teachers will be judged with a stricter judgment. I will be held more accountable than almost anyone in this room when we die. Because of the leverage and the ability I have to infect your minds from this pulpit. God takes teaching seriously. Paul takes teaching seriously. So what do we learn from Galatians chapter 5, 7 through 12? Take teaching seriously. <laughs>